is what my plan is for my time this morning. I want to begin by telling you a story, and then I want to share two small passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to share five points with you after that. Does that sound like a plan? Just so you kind of are aware of what's going to happen. And um, why don't you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, you truly are gracious. You are definitely more gracious towards us than what we deserve. And we're thankful for that. And it's not lost on us how much you love us. But Father, we don't want our love to just be something that we hold on to for ourselves. But we want your love to be manifested in our lives in such a way that others will see you. And that you would draw others to you through us. May you be glorified now as we open up your word. Amen. This morning we're continuing our sermon series, and it's titled Growing Together. And the idea behind this series is that we want to leave or pass on our faith to the generations that come after us. We would love to see our church filled with young people, but we understand that sometimes we can't control some of those things. But as long as it's up to us, we will do everything that we can to create an environment in this place where young people can feel like they belong. I've heard many horror stories over the many years of being alive. And oftentimes these are horror stories of what someone in a church, not our church, but someone in a church said to this young person or that young person, and then they, and then they don't want to come back to church. And part of my calling to be a pastor is to make sure that that doesn't happen in this place. Because we want to make sure that we are as welcoming as possible, especially to those of the younger generation. And so this sermon series is based on research on thousands of churches of what churches are doing to keep some of the younger people here. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, like, what does this have to do with me? And the answer is always, it has everything to do with you. So as we're going through this series, there's a total of six teachings. I want you to think to yourself, what is this saying to me? Like, what does this mean, and what does it require of me? You know, because when it comes to faith, faith isn't just about what do I get to keep to myself, but when it comes to faith is how do I get to pass on everything that I know to the next generation so that their faith can be strengthened and their faith can be built up. So with that in mind, I want to share with you a story. Some of you have heard my story that when I was in elementary school, I was raised in a neighborhood that was poor, We didn't have a lot of income or a lot of money, and there was no elementary school. So they would bust us out to this really nice, fancy elementary school, which I'm thankful for, that was on the other side of town. So that was great. We had everything. It was like a school that wasn't lacking in funds. We had after-school activities. It was amazing. It was the best. But when sixth grade ended, I couldn't go on to the school that was down the street. I had to go back to my side of town. So when I was in seventh grade, it was a very different set of people that were there, right? So in my neighborhood, and some of you have been to my neighborhood where I grew up, I don't live there anymore, but back then it was lower income, there was a lot of gang activity. Some of you have heard my story about getting mugged even in that neighborhood. So I went to the junior high that was assigned to our neighborhood, and there was, I hate saying like there was some bad kids, but there was some bad kids, can I say that? Yeah, there was some bad kids. (laughs) Like, they had a dress code so that you couldn't dress like you looked like you were a gangster to go to school, okay? So it was like that kind of a school, right? But 
you know, growing up where I grew up, I would hang out with a certain kind of group of kids. And so in one particular class, math class, there was these two kids that I would walk home from school every day. Not the good kids, all right? I hope they're not listening. Online, not here. But so there was these kids, and they would sit in math class with me. And they were a little rough around the edges. They were kind of getting into trouble all the time, and they were getting into things that they weren't supposed to be getting into. But one of the things that they didn't do was their homework. So when we would go to class, I had to do my homework because I'd get grounded. But if when we went to class and we would have tests or quizzes, they would sit and it was like there was four, four desks in one, and then they would want to cheat off of me. So I didn't want to get beat up, so I was like, okay. But I would always give them this caveat. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. So if you want to copy off me, it's at your own risk. Because honestly, I don't, I'm just putting numbers down right now. Like I am just trying to pretend like it looks like I know what I'm doing. I never did well in math. And they would copy off me, and then they would get angry with me when they would get like Ds. Like sometimes I would like do it on purpose just because I did know sometimes. But the reality is, is that for the seventh grade, there was these group of kids that I would hang out with. And it was just one of those things where you kind of hang out with the people you grow up with. And this is who walked home with me every single day. And so this is just who I was. And so one day I had a teacher. Her name is Patricia Ann Cass. She's retired now. I think she retired in 2012. I remember she pulled me out of class on a day when these kids were particularly being not very good. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble. Like... I didn't even do anything. I'm just trying, like, to kind of be cool, but also, like, but you don't go too far. And she pulled me aside. She had this, like, English accent or some kind of accent. Maybe it was Southern accent. Now looking back, I don't know. I had a very small world in seventh grade. And she pulled me aside outside, and she looked at me, and she says, Don't give in to them. You are a leader, and you will lead people. And when you get to high school, you will be a leader. And I remember sitting there, and, you know, I had great parents. I had a good upbringing. But I remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, you don't know who I am. You really don't know that much about me. But what it did to me, and and so I want, my initial reaction was to react to it and say, like, no, 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 that's not true. But I just sat there. I was going to say something. And she was like, no, no, listen, just hear what I'm saying. And in that moment, when I was in seventh grade, just out on the, on the corner of Acacia and Commonwealth, the corner room, this woman spoke something into my life that had it not been for her, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. She was able to see beyond my circumstances. She was able to look through the people that I was hanging out with. She was even able to look in some ways beyond what I thought about myself because she, I believe this was God, because I know she was a Christian woman, but I believe God somehow in some way allowed her to work alongside God and speak something into my life that has forever changed my life. Because she saw something in this little Mexican kid that I couldn't see in myself. She didn't have to say anything. She, didn't even, she could have just given me bad grades. She could have given me detention. She could have done whatever she wanted to. But instead, she spoke into my life in such a way that would change the course of the history of my life forever. Now, there was other people that God placed in my life to get here. But here's why I'm sharing with you this story this morning. As adults and as people in churches, 
we often don't do what Miss Cass did for me that day. Oftentimes we get annoyed by some of the younger generation. We have certain expectations of what we think they should be. And when they don't dress the way we think they should dress or when, you know, they have things on them that we don't think they should have or whatever it is, right? We, we instead of loving them, of entering into relationship with them, instead of just being friends with them, we end up judging people. And oftentimes what we think we're doing good by saying like, well, you're wrong in this or you're doing this bad or whatever. When we think we're doing something good, we're actually doing the complete opposite thing. And as people who are mature in our faith, which I know that we are. It is your sacred responsibility to look beyond the things you don't like in someone and enter into relationship with them, especially with our younger generation, because one day they will not be the younger generation, but they will be the adults. And we want them to have that fulfilling, life-giving relationship with Jesus. I wish that, like Miss Cass, what she did for me, that we could do to others now i went into ministry thinking i love preaching i love talking and so i thought to myself like the best part about being a pastor is getting up on saturday morning and preaching my heart out and everyone's gonna lives is going to be changed because i preached the most amazing sermon that's what pastors think what's the reality of that y'all only remember the sermons that i you don't like (laughs) Very few times do we remember the sermons that we really like. Like, we're like, oh, yeah, the pastor had a good string of good sermons. But you always remember the ones you don't like. And I share that example because of this. True, life-lasting ministry doesn't happen because of what I do up here. But it happens in the conversations that every one of you has with each other. You see, that's Christian community at its best. That's what being a Christian at its very best is being able to participate and in entering into relationships with one another, upholding one another, bearing on one another's burdens, lifting each other up. Because when we know that we are supported, we are able to do so much more in life. You know, this is our sacred calling. You know, as Paul, Paul said one time, he says, I have decided to know nothing among you. He came to this church, not this church, but he came to a church. He said, I've decided to know nothing among you but Christ and Christ crucified. Paul says, I have chosen to look only in the very best of you, not the worst of you. You see, God doesn't hold your worst sins against you. He doesn't. So why should we hold people's sins against them? We are not called to be judge. We are called to be friend. We are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And for us to be able to pass on our faith to the next generation is to be able to see the very best in our children and in our young people and be able to pour into their lives because we want them not just to fill this place, but to have a life-giving relationship with Christ. I think that oftentimes, and we see this, like the statistics are staggering, but when kids who have grown up in church if they're not a part of a welcoming environment in the church, if the, if the church isn't this warm place where they feel safe, when they turn 18 and they move out of their house, or whenever they move out of their house, because I know some of us took a lot longer, but whenever you move out of your parents' house, sometimes they won't come to church. 
And we think, well, we, we told them the truth. We told them everything they needed to know. But the reality is, is that for people to come back to a place like this, they have to be, feel like they are welcomed into it, not just about what is true or what is biblically accurate. So I want to share with you a story from Scripture to kind of drive this point home. So if you have your Bibles, or if not, I think I have it up. I have it up on the screen. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21, verse 15. This is at the end of the book, and here's what we have. And it says, when Jesus had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So Jesus uses the word agape. So the Greek word for love that Jesus uses here is agape. Do you love me unconditionally? above everything and everyone else. Like, that's what the question that Jesus asks him. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. Jesus asks Peter the question, do you love me unconditionally? To which, if we just read it in the English, Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you unconditionally. But the word that he uses there and And this is just fun, nerdy stuff that pastors like to point out. But in the Greek, the word is actually, I love you like a brother. So Jesus asks, do you love me unconditionally? He says, yeah, I love you like a brother, like phileo love. Like you can look it up. You can Google it. A second time he says to him, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus answered him, tend my sheep. Again, Jesus asks asks him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Those are the two Greek words, right? So they're having almost like these two separate conversations. And Jesus says, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So there's a couple of things going on here. Do you remember, and I'm probably not going to read that part of the scriptures because I can tell it to you. But you know, when we come to this story, there's a couple of things that are happening here. So we can make a lot out of these words for love. And in some ways, if we were to really go deep into this, we might be able to say that Peter wasn't really loving Jesus the way he was supposed to because Jesus was asking him, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter was just like, well, I love you like a brother. (laughs) You know, it's like, I love you, but there's always that reservation. But you see, Jesus doesn't get mad at Peter. Jesus doesn't go on to this 10-point doctrinal thing about, well, Peter, if you truly loved me, you would say it this way. Or if you truly love me, Peter, you would say these things or do these things. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus simply asks him, do you love me? And what's powerful about this passage and what this means for us as we are passing on our faith to the next generations is Jesus changes his language. He goes from, do you love me unconditionally? And he realizes, okay, for whatever reason, Peter's not tracking with me. And so Jesus does for Peter what Jesus has done for us. And he goes down and he meets Peter where he is. And if the very best that Peter could say is, yes, I phileo love you, like that's phileo, like, like, uh, yeah, friend, like brother, familial love. (laughs) Then Jesus doesn't force him to say something else. Jesus simply meets him where he is and says, okay, we'll work with that. 
You see, Jesus has a way of meeting you and me where we are in our life of faith. You know, when it comes to faith, we often um, we look at people and we make judgments about what we, where we think they are in their faith based on the expectations that we have of ourselves. We do this all the time. We have expectations of what we think people should look like when they come to church, how they should dress, how their hair should be, if they could wear jewelry or not, if they should wear makeup or not. We have certain expectations about how much people should give. You know, we have certain expectations about how people should talk. So we, we have all of these expectations. And what ends up happening, especially for us as Christians, and I do this all the time, is we, we look at someone else who isn't living up to our particular expectations, and then we make a judgment about their faith. And instead of us entering into relationship with these people, we, ex, we, we instead judge them and in a sense almost excommunicate and banish them because they're not living up to our particular standard. But when we look at the story of Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus meets Peter where he is. And he doesn't just meet him where he is and say, okay, Peter, like, good job, buddy. But Jesus asks Peter to participate in the work of God in this world. Peter didn't answer this question necessarily correctly. But that doesn't disqualify him from participating in the redemptive work of Christ. That is good news for us. Because if you remember just, I think it's in John chapter 18, the story of Jesus' crucifixion is connected to this story. Jesus had told Peter, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the, um, before the rooster crows on the day that Jesus was being arrested. And Peter, remember Peter was like, like the loud guy, the proud guy, like he was the guy that was willing to like physically fight Roman soldiers so that Jesus wouldn't be arrested. Like Peter was like alpha male, right? And so, and so Jesus says like, yeah, okay, alpha male, calm down. You're going to deny me three times because you're going to be afraid before the rooster crows tonight. And Peter says, never, never, right? And what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. Like, he's, like, outside in the courtyard where Jesus is, like, before Pontius Pilate. And, like, they add, and, and it's not even, like, this big thing, but, like, people, like, he's warming his hands next to some other Romans. And they say, hey, weren't you the guy that was with Jesus? And Peter's like, no, not me. Like, he's like, look, you know how when you're trying not to stand out? He does that two other times. He denies Jesus three times. Now, think about this. Just, just think about this. He denies Jesus three times when Jesus is arrested. Then Jesus is crucified. Now, Peter denies him because he was afraid. He didn't want to be crucified himself. Like, this is when things got real, when Jesus is arrested. So Peter denies him. Jesus is arrested, crucified, put in a tomb. And then he resurrects. Like, I know, like, it loses the power because we talk about this on a weekly basis. But then Jesus is resurrected. He comes back to life. He's, like, sitting having breakfast with the guy who basically was like, I, I don't know Jesus. Like, he's not one of my friends, right? Like, I just have that kind of a face where I look like I was there, right? Like, like Peter, and so imagine, Jesus dies and is resurrected. And at that point for the disciples, they're like, okay, this is, this is the real, this is it. This is the real deal. And then Jesus is having breakfast with Peter. And Peter's probably like, Jesus must know that I denied him three times. Like, he is having to face, like, some mistakes that he did. Like, that, we would see that as a mistake or a failure of nerve. 
And Jesus doesn't get on his case, and he doesn't say, like, I told you you were going to do that. I told you. I prophesied it. I predicted it. You did it. Why do I want to be friends with you? Jesus could have said any of those things. Jesus could have kept his, his failures against them, but instead, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus instead tells us this story. And the story is basically this. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. He didn't even answer the question correctly, but Jesus is like, okay, that's good enough for me. And this, and, and every, theolo- every theologian will say that this is kind of like Jesus' way of allowing Peter to accept him publicly just as he had rejected him couple of days earlier you see jesus doesn't keep our mistakes against us and and neither should we like if i look back on my life and and i am so thankful for mentors in my life and and one of them that i always look back to is ernie furness he was the pastor when (laughs) the most awkward stages of my life but he was the pastor at the anaheim church and I mean, like, if you guys knew me back then, like, you guys would be like, man, our pastor is such a nerd, like, dork. Like, you guys would, hairstyles changed, clothes changed, I don't know what other kind of weird things I did, what thoughts I had, you know, like, when we would talk about Bible studies. But, you know, Ernie Furness, for those of you who don't know him, he's, like, he's at the conference office now, and he's, like, our pastor's pastor, and so we go to him whenever we have any kind of issues. But he was my church pastor when I was growing up. And, like, he never once judged me outwardly. <laughs> like, he never said anything. But you know what he would do? He would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, here, come help me lead um, Sabbath school. Hey, come, what do you think about this? Will you read this? Hey, hey, why don't you come and be a part of this part of it? Like, like, he kept inviting me into the different ministries of the church. He didn't have to. But you know what he did really well? There are six people that came out of that church who are now in full-time ministry in the time that we were, in the time that he I mean, there's probably more before us, but of our generation, there are six people that I have no doubt, because of the way that he led, are now in full-time ministry, pastoring and, and reaching into people's lives that may not have happened had it not been for him being willing, willing to participate in what God was doing. You see, we think that, oh, our little kids, they're cool, they're great, they're going to make great adventurers or great pathfinders, and we love seeing them up here. But what if we instead shifted our understanding and said, this is our sacred invitation to enter into relationship and friendship with these kids and pour into their lives and just get to know them. Like, like you don't have to judge them. You're not their parent. You, you get to be like the fun, the fun like family member that gets to joke with them and bring them cookies. I don't know if you can do that. I mean... It's better to ask for forgiveness than afterwards. I could. But, like, it is your sacred privilege. And, like, when I'm reading this book and I'm going through some of this, it's like, you know, I have fallen short in this area, and I want to do better. So I want to just finish up with, um, with a couple of things. Here's what the research shows. Many of the teenagers and emerging adults interviewed wish they had more connection with those in older generations. So this is now research that shows why people that are younger stay in the church when they're, like, once they turn 18 and they can make the decision not to. Okay, So here's some of the research. They wish they had closer connection with those of the older generation. Now, you can be someone of the older generation that just tells people where they're wrong and what they're doing wrong, or you can be part of the older generation that walks alongside these younger people and, and just ask 
questions. Keep this sense of curiosity and just allow them to be kids. Because remember, kids are kids. They're not adults. I mean, it's sometimes hard for us to remember what it was like to be a kid. But when you're a kid, you're filled with fear and insecurities and anxieties and all kinds of things. But what if you had, and we all know someone in our life that was an adult that we felt like we could ask any questions and they would allow us to be curious, you know, um, that's a, make sure I say this correctly. <laughs> There's adults that were safe, that allowed kids to be themselves and allowed them to ask any kinds of questions. And there was no judgment, but there was just the presence of these people in our lives. And so when we, when we looked at the title for this week's sermon, it's called Key Chain Leadership. And key chain leadership in the context of the church, it's a, it's a term that means... Are we a church who is inviting younger people to be a part of the leadership and the ministries of this church? Now, I understand, like, if they're little kids, like, it's harder. But as, as they become adults, are we inviting them? Are we, in a sense, giving them the metaphorical key to the church and saying, we trust you, we value you, and we want you to be a part of the leadership of the church? Are we that kind of church? And so one of the things that they find in this study is that keychain leaders, right, the people that we're giving leadership to, are real, not necessarily relevant. And what they mean by this is that the more transparent the leader is personally and the more transparent a church is organizationally, the better position the church seems to be to grow young. And meaning growing young means that young people stay. You know, so many times we think that in order for young people to come to our church, we have to have a really hip worship service and we have to have cool lights and fog machines. And this may not make sense to any of you, but like some of us pastors think that we have to make this environment so amazing that younger people are going to come. But what the research shows is that that is not necessarily the case, but that what brings younger people are the relationships they have in the environment of being welcomed into a church. Part of that and part of building relationships is being transparent. Keychain leaders understand that this younger generation has a sixth sense for authenticity and intuitively knows whether or not leaders are genuine. Yeah, kids, like younger, I can say kids even if they're 20, right? But like they know if you're real or if you're just faking it. Keychain leaders are warm, not distant. I don't think I have to share much on that, but it says, while young people may be able to find great preaching online, right? You can go anywhere and find great preaching. Many told us that they are aching for more than that. They want to be in relationship with leaders who know their name and model a life of faith. Like Jesus is calling you into the sacred task of being one of these adults to younger people. Like, you just have to be present. Not just to your own kids and your own family, but to everyone around. Because that has a far more reaching impact on the life of a younger person than any sermon I preach up here. Because let's be real, they're probably drawing right now, not paying attention to me. That's okay. I don't mind. So as we come to the close and we, we looked at that story where I first started and I said someone saw something in me, whether she saw it or not, but she spoke that into my life and now I'm here. And when we see Jesus, is that Jesus chose to give Peter a chance and he saw the very best in Peter as opposed to just judging him for what he had done wrong. And the research in the book Growing Young shows us that when we are willing to be like Jesus, 
when we are willing to allow our younger generation to be themselves and just walk alongside them and keep inviting them into the ministries of the church where, you know, where, where it's appropriate and it's age appropriate. They will have a longer lasting faith. And I think that is more important than any church building, than any attendance numbers, than any sermon that we preach. But are we teaching our younger generations how beautiful and good a relationship with Christ can look? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we know that you desire so much out of us. We ask, Lord, that as we've heard this message... And for all of my friends who are here this morning, that it would not have, that it would not go in one ear and go out another ear, but that the stories we heard, that you would cement them into our consciousness, that you would open our eyes to be able to see how we can reach out to our younger generation. God, that we would do it not just because the pastor said, but because you are calling us to so that we could see them grow and mature in ways that will bring them closer to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.